Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 405 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, I am pumped for this episode. Uh, this is a fun one. Okay, we have Adam Grant on the podcast today, and he is somebody I have been learning from from years. It's been amazing to connect with him, and this is a different kind of interview. So stay tuned. I'll tell you more about it. This episode is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can get help with your social media management and digital growth and get 10% off for life at promediafire.com forward slash carry. And by Glue Connect, you can go to glueconnect.church forward slash carry, that's C-A-R-E-Y, to grow your digital outreach campaigns and get free access to my four-part course available only there called Click to Connect. It's all about the new digital world that we are in. Well, I am so thrilled to have Adam Grant on the podcast today. Uh, We ended up going in some really surprising places. So normally what I do is I try to be quiet and just like interview the guest and let the guest talk. And this turned into a very different conversation. I think halfway through, you'll think like, are these guys at dinner? And that's what it really felt like. We even talk about that. Uh, Adam is so open and so curious. He almost ended up interviewing me. And we ended up talking about preaching and apologetics for the 21st century. Uh, We talk about how conspiracy theories take hold. And he shows you how to get out of your echo chamber. He has a brilliant book. It'll be on my uh, top leadership recommends list next year. Well, (laughs) right now it's called Think Again. And uh, it just the day after we recorded this, it hit the New York Times bestseller list. Adam is an organizational psychologist at Wharton, where he has been the top rated professor for seven straight years. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of four books that have sold millions of copies and been translated into 35 languages. In addition to Think Again, which I highly recommend, you should pick up Give and Take, Originals, Option B, and Power Moves. They have been recognized as among the year's best books by Amazon, the Financial Times, Harvard Business Review, and the Wall Street Journal. And his work has been praised by J.J. Abrams, Richard Branson, Bill and Melinda Gates, Malcolm Gladwell, and so many others. We talk about uh, the power of knowing what you don't know. Uh, Adam's TED Talks have been viewed more than 20 million times. He has an amazing podcast, a TED podcast called Work Life with Adam Grant. And he has been recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers. He's on Fortune's 40 Under 40 list, Oprah's Super Soul 100, and is a World Economic Forum global leader. He's also a professor who has had numerous scientific achievement awards, and uh, he writes for the New York Times. Yeah, okay. That's a long bio. Adam, it's in such a joy that you would spend some time with us, and I found this conversation hyper stimulating. I hope you will too. It goes in all kinds of interesting places. And thanks to our partners for this podcast too. It's people like ProMedia Fire and Glue Connect that bring this to you every single week. Are you looking to grow your online campus? Well, you got two choices in 2021 when it comes to digital. You or a team member can do all the work to keep up with strategy and social media, or you can hire ProMedia Fire and get an entire team of experts to keep up with the trends to help you grow online. The choice is yours. So bury yourself in work or get a team to help you thrive. With ProMedia Fire, you save time and you grow online while your digital team does all the work. As a listener of this podcast, you're going to get 10% off for life if you do this. 
go to promediafire.com forward slash carry. That's promediafire.com forward slash carry. And speaking of the online world, if you're like most pastors, your outreach strategy probably looks nothing like it did a year ago. You may be investing in marketing and outreach now. It could be like Google ads or direct mail or door hangers or maybe even Facebook ads. So digital is your number one outreach channel, but how can you get the right message to the right people? So that's why Glue Connect was created. Doesn't require any additional staff, and here's how it works. They run professional felt needs-based ads on Facebook, Instagram, and other digital channels. They pool funds from donors and churches to create cooperative campaigns in your city. And in Kansas City, churches saw a 21% increase in new people connecting with churches for the first time. So Easter is almost here. And uh, what are you doing for digital outreach? Well, in select cities, you can now get Glue Connect free for the first year. That's a $1,700 value. If you're curious whether your city is covered by that, and if you qualify for free, head on over to Glue Connect. That's G-L-O-O connect dot church forward slash carry. I'll say that one more time. Glue Connect, G-L-O-O, glueconnect.church forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to learn more. As a bonus, when you sign up, you'll get my free Click to Connect course inside Glue Connect. It is only there. It's a four-part video course. It's a $250 value, so make sure you check that out. Well, without further ado, I am thrilled to bring you a wide-ranging, fascinating conversation with the one and only Adam Grant. Adam, what a thrill to have you on the podcast. Welcome. The thrill is all mine, Carrie. I'm delighted to be here, and I can't wait to see where this conversation takes us. So I, I agree with Seth Godin that this is a book that you should buy uh, four copies of, one for you and three to give away. So congratulations. I was, I was joking with you that it was hard for me to get my regular work done because, you know, normally you prep for an interview or whatever, but I could not put the book down. And uh, best diagrams and charts of any book I've ever read. So really funny. You have a great sense of humor. Did like you must have enjoyed writing it? Uh, thank you. I had a blast writing it. And the the charts and diagrams. I had the privilege of collaborating with Matt Shirley, who is my favorite account on Instagram because every day he posts a hilarious chart. And I I just I found myself sharing a bunch of them one day, and I thought, you know what? That's what's missing from this book. I need oh. I need some visual humor. And I reached out to him cold and he said, I'd love to work with you on this. And then the rest was history. No, it was really good because there's some actual scientific charts and then there's some jokes, which is really funny. And cartoons, like if people like me don't like to read books without pictures, now there's pictures. So thank you. Really well done. Um, how do you select the subjects for your book? This is uh, This is number four. And there seems to be, I heard you say in your interview with J.J. Abrams, that there was no overarching thread. And now you're sort of, you know, rethinking that, pardon the pun. But I'd, I'd love to know how you decided, like on originals, give and take, because it's all research-based. So there's a lot of investment there. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I had a very disciplined process when I started. I, I took questions that I was interested in. And mm -hmm. for me, interest meant that I would go to bed at night thinking about them. I would make my friends and family members talk to me about some of the research yeah. because I just... I was just so fascinated by some of the questions. And then I think I filtered a little bit from all the things I was interested in to what's important and also where do I have something different to say? And I think if you just take the Venn diagram of interesting, important, and novel, uh, I think that's, that's been my heuristic for deciding what I want to study and write about. And I didn't, I didn't realize it until recently that there is a common thread across all my books, which is... I am trying to prove 
And I think the evidence now is overwhelming that you don't have to choose between character and success. Hmm. Say more about that. that. That's fascinating to me. I mean, I think I, it's something I've seen year after year with my students at Wharton. They'll say things like, you know, one of the reasons I wrote Give and Take was I had students saying, well, I'm going to achieve as much success as I can and make as much money as possible so then I can give back. No, actually, your soul's gone by that point. But yeah, yeah. good luck with that, right? Uh, I, I don't know how you're going to sleep at night, but I know a lot of successful people who were givers from the start, and they weren't doing it with money. They were generous with their knowledge, with their time, with their connections in introducing people. And let's figure out how you can combine that virtue of generosity with your own ambitions. Mm. And I, I think that's been a lens that I've been, I've been excited about ever since, is to say, okay. Uh, there may be ways in which, you know, in this case, I think think again is very much about the virtue of humility yeah. and how a lot of people think you have to be confident to the point of arrogant or narcissistic in order to achieve great things. And my goal in this book is to get you to rethink that if you believe that. But Carrie, I know you don't believe that. So you, you don't have to do any rethinking on that. Well, we've done. We spent a lot of time talking about that. the The link between, you know, my theory for years has been that the char- your character is actually the cap on your capacity because you look at how many super smart, wicked smart people are out there, gifted, talented, and yet, you know, they're thirty years into their field and they end up having some kind of moral collapse or whatever. And this isn't even in the church space. This could be in the business space, political space. And they're down in flames, you know, and, and I, I think that's a noble calling. So I, I think so too. And you just, you put that so beautifully. I think, I think that becomes more true as people advance more in their careers, because, you know, if, if you just want to be an individual superstar, it's possible that with the right combination of hard work, talent, and luck, you can achieve something yourself. Hmm. But the more powerful you become, the more your success depends on making other people successful. It's really, it's really hard to do that if you are a selfish taker or if you are a narcissistic leader. And uh, I've, I've really taken issue lately with this idea of separate spheres that so many people like to talk about. Hmm. So people will, you know, whether it's a CEO or a political candidate, people will say, hey, you know what? I, I don't care what they do in their personal life. I'm interested oh, yeah. in their professional competence. And that's never made any sense to me because I don't think that we we walk into the office and suddenly become a completely different person. And mm. sure enough, there was a study that came out recently showing that men who cheat on their wives are also more likely to cheat on their taxes and they're more likely to cheat when it comes to their company's finances, right? That you, you don't get to say I have integrity at work, but I'm, you know, I'm a terrible person at home. Well, you know, and that I'm so glad you went into the cultural dimensions of this because I read the book with interest, had a hard time putting it down. And I'm like, this is really good on the individual level. But then the third part of your book, I think it was part three, went into the whole cultural milieu, sort of the political uh, debate. Uh, and you didn't really go into politics, but you talked about really contentious issues too. And that has been a dominant line that we've heard over the last particularly 10 years, it's like, well, I don't care who you sleep with. As long as you pass these laws, appoint these judges, as long as you, you know, do lower my taxes or, or you pad the bottom line and my stocks go up, then I'm cool with you. And you're saying that's a bust. I think in the long run, if, if that's our philosophy, we're all going to lose because we're, <laughs> we're, we're not really thinking about the character and the competence of the people we elevate into positions of leadership. And yeah. 
I, I would venture a guess that those qualities are pretty important. Well, and you're an organizational psychologist. You teach at Wharton. You've been the top-rated teacher there for years now. I think it's seven years as we record this. I would love to know, because in the young leaders I talk to, there is this, this desire for ethical business. I'm having a dinner at my place in May with a guy who just did a business school at a university here in Canada. He, he um, established it. Um, and, you know, one of the things we talked about at dinner last time we were together was, hey, like, what are we going to do about ethical investing, et cetera, et cetera? What changes are you seeing in the next generation of business leaders? Do you see that like cutthroat 80s, like Wall Street greed or what What are you seeing? No, I think my students are fed up with Gordon oh. Gecko. <laughs> Let's leave that guy in the movies a couple a couple decades ago. I think there, it's interesting. I think that... I think part of this is because we've started to see the, you know, the really something that we should have seen all along because economists always talk about externalities, right? The negative externalities associated with unbridled sort of shareholder capitalism. And so if you talk to any one of my MBA students or undergrads at Wharton, one of the first things they'll bring up is the idea that we need to be about stakeholders, not shareholders, mm. that you can't claim that people are the most important resource in your company because people are your company. <laughs> and that, you know, that we need to think about obviously serving the people that we lead, that servant leadership is important, that we need to care about customers in our community. And I, I think that's great news. I think part of the reason that that's getting amplified, though, is not just generational. It's actually a silver lining of the series of recessions that we've had. Hmm. Uh, there's some research by Emily Bianchi, which looks at what the state of the economy is when you start your career. So if you finish school, uh, and take your first job. Are we in a boom or a bust? Right. And it turns out that leaders who started their careers during a recession actually pay their employees more generously and they're less likely to cheat. Hmm. Which I thought was so interesting. And it, Emily's argument is that when you start your career knowing how difficult it can be to get a job, hmm. that that creates a sense of noblesse oblige, that this this sense of responsibility as opposed to entitlement then it's sort of it's something you carry with you throughout your career. And I, I have to wonder if we're now going to see a generation of leaders, in part because of this awful pandemic we've had to live through, who do feel a greater sense of responsibility than their predecessors did. Fascinating. You know, we're 400 episodes into this show now. And one of the things I've noticed with entrepreneurs who have gone on to do really, really well, led very big companies, etc., so many of them have heartbreak stories growing up. Poverty, you know, being picked on, whatever it was. And, and they turn out to be the most generous people. You would think they would be stingy, but in fact, they're actually generous. That's, that's fascinating. Okay. I'm tempted to talk about originals, but I really want to dive into this book because I think it's that meaty. It, it needs to occupy at least an hour, if not more. You open the book with this idea, a preacher, a prosecutor, and a politician and a scientist walk into your mind. Okay. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, three of those almost, like a preacher <laughs> and a prosecutor. Uh, I was more on the defense side in my brief time in law. And uh, I was actually involved in politics. I'm apolitical now, but in my teen years and early 20s, I was almost that. So I'm almost like three strikes, I'm out. So <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, Carrie, I knew you were a preacher. Oh. I knew you had a law background. Politics too. This is, this is the trifecta. 
It is. It is. There you go. That was going to be my thing. I was going to be involved in politics. And then I got disillusioned quickly in my early 20s and kind of stepped back. And then when I got a call into ministry, I'm like apolitical, apolitical, apolitical. So sort of been where I am over the last 30 years. But fascinating. So what is wrong with our preachers, our politicians, and our prosecutors as far as a mindset for thinking again goes? Well, I, I think I think you just hit the critical distinction, which is I, I don't want to say there's anything wrong with these professions, yeah. right? I think the I think the danger is that these professions sometimes take over our minds and prevent us from thinking again. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm guilty of all of them, especially the prosecutor. Yeah. But let's let's walk through the three. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about preachers because you you do have tens of thousands of preachers listening to this. So it's like speak speak to us because this is what we do, right? We're schooled in the art of persuasion. And I've I've found that evangelism, which is something I'm very passionate about, has changed over the years. And I think you're onto something. Oh, interesting. I'm I'm very curious to hear how you reacted to this. So mm. the original idea came from my colleague Phil Tetlock, who observed that when we do a lot of our thinking and decision making, uh, we we kind of operate like we're preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. So when you're thinking like a preacher, you've got a set of, of sacred beliefs and you think your job is to spread those and proselytize. And a prosecutor, I think in some ways is the opposite. I'm Ooh. trying to win an argument. And that means I have to make sure that you are wrong. Uh, and then a politician, I think, is, is fundamentally about trying to get the approval of a certain audience. And that might mean that I'm doing a lot of campaigning and lobbying and maybe flattering you right, to, to try to curry favor somehow. And Carrie, I think the, the danger of, of all of these is that they can stand in the way of rethinking because mm. if, if I'm a preacher or a prosecutor, I'm, I'm sure I'm right and you're wrong. And that means I will not change my mind. You might need to change yours, mm -hmm. right? But I'm good. I've already found the truth. That is the goal. Yep. I, I guess of a preacher. That's how a lot of us think. Yep. And then as a politician, the worry is that I'm not pursuing the truth if I change my mind. I'm just doing it to fit into my tribe. Right, right. And so I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm not actually pursuing you know, a, a higher principle of integrity to find out what, what might be real uh, or what might be right. So let's, let's start with the preacher because you are a preacher by calling. Um, where do you come down on this? Do you, do you also worry... I, I think there's, let me just say one other thing, sorry, that I, I should have said earlier, which is yeah. I, I can see the value of talking like a preacher in order to inspire people. Yeah. Where I get worried is when people are always thinking like preachers and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of taking everything as a matter of faith as opposed to, hold, I guess, as opposed to holding some doubt. So yeah, help me make sense of that. Well, you, you make a really, really good point. I mean, I think there's always, uh, I, I would say as I've gotten older, I've become more open-minded, which is probably going to generate a lot of uh, letters and angry things. It's like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be more convinced, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what I've discovered. Now, I'm Canadian, so I live north of Toronto. I would say that we are more post-Christian than a lot of American culture, depending. The coast, you know, go to California, Seattle, it's pretty post-Christian, but, you know, middle America... You're pretty much in the Bible Belt still, at least if you're dealing with baby boomers and older Gen Xers. I would say, and I'd, I'd love to, because I, I think you make a really good point that everybody needs to pay attention to, because to some extent, your book is about the art of persuasion in the context of rethinking. You talk a lot about that. And what I've found is there's always a minority group that is attracted to certainty in black and white. In other words, you're always going to find those people, right? You can find them on the internet, 
find them in the church. And there are churches built on like, I have a monopoly on the truth, blah, 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 blah. So here's what I've discovered. Half of the people who attend our church, and I've handed it off to the next generation now a few years ago, but half the people who attend our church didn't used to attend church. And that kind of certainty is actually repulsive to them. That what they have discovered, what I discover is that when I, when I give intelligence to an atheist argument or to an agnostic argument, it actually gains me credibility. You talk about it in here, but steel man versus straw man. So it's pretty easy to set up the straw man or straw woman and knock them down. But if I, if I take the best argument of my opponent and actually honor it and say, you know what, that's a really good point. That, that is a really good point. And intelligent people think a very different way. However, have you considered X? I've learned as a preacher that that, but that's kind of where you go in your book, but that whole idea of, Adam, let me give you 15 reasons you're wrong, right? Like that, that's a bit dated. It is. I, I, I love the way you just articulated that because I think what you're, you're doing at a fundamental level is you are establishing that although your job is, you know, in, in that circumstance to be a preacher, um, that you're willing to think more scientifically. Okay. That you're you're interested in exploring different ideas, right? As opposed to just sort of selling your answers. Well, and I think I think that's true. I mean, I think atheists have a lot of good points. I think agnostics have a lot of good points. You know, being I don't know, right? There's a lot we don't know. There are a few things about Christianity for myself that I'm like, you know, I just can't walk away from that. Like I just, I just, I'm having a really hard time. Maybe you can help me, but I, I just can't walk away from some of the core things. And I find that kind of, and the other thing, you know, I've, I've taught this for years to preachers, but it's assume intelligence, not background. And often a lot of the time, if you listen to preaching, and I don't know how much preaching you've been exposed to in your life, certainly the stereotypes, but a lot of preaching assumes that you're stupid and I'm smart. And I think like, if, if you, anybody was to treat me that way, I would be offended. I'd just love for you to comment on it because you do have a lot of preachers listening right now. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've, I've made the same mistake as a teacher, mm. right? Where I, I've thought, okay, you know, my job I, as a psychologist by training, my job is to understand the mind and behavior and apply it to leadership in organizations. And I thought when I started my career that I was here to enlighten my students, essentially. about <laughs> They're dumb. You're all, smart, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although I, I think I would have said I have a lot of knowledge that they don't. Correct. And that okay, knowledge, fair. you know, is is grounded in rigorous evidence. And I want to make sure that they have access to it. Hmm. And over time, I started to get very disillusioned with myself because I was failing to practice what I teach. I was I was basically treating evidence as gospel hmm. as opposed to saying, you know what? I brought you the best randomized controlled experiment on effective leadership that I could but it was done with one group of people in one country, in one industry. And you're right, we don't know how that would play out in a different setting. And why don't we try to figure that out? What, a, what an exciting opportunity for all of us to learn. And I, I think that's, that's been just a big aha for me is that one, I learn a lot more mm. with that orientation. And two, I think that people are much more excited to learn with you than they are to learn from you. Ooh, that's good. That's really, really good. So you, but that's why, but that's why people love. I, that's one of the reasons people love your show, Carrie. Is you enter into these conversations where you're in discovery mode and curiosity oh. mode, not just preaching mode, right? I, I, I tell you, I formulate these questions really carefully, 
And I try to be open. I try to be really, really open. And I have guests who don't agree with each other on the show. I don't have them on the same episode, but it's like, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's some room. So you would say you were the prosecutor. You were the person who was going to, what does a prosecutor do? Uh, I, I was the worst prosecutor and I still am <laughs> yeah. more often than I would like to admit. I, I'm that person who, one of my all-time favorite con- cartoons is uh, <laughs> a guy sitting at a computer. He, he can't sleep and the question is why. And he says, someone is wrong on the internet. <laughs> it's the story of my life. I, there's, when, when I think somebody's beliefs are incorrect, uh. I just I feel like it's my job to try to educate them. And I think that's why I was drawn to being a social scientist. It's why I was excited about becoming a professor in part because I wanted to help people move closer to the truth. And I think the way that I did that, you, you touched on it earlier, I would just, I would pile on reason after reason and argument after argument. And one day, one of my students actually called me a logic bully, which I, I didn't know what to make of that at first. And I, sheepishly, I was, I was a little bit proud because I, I, I don't want to bully anyone, right? right? but I want to use the most compelling logic and the most airtight evidence to try to convince people to change their minds on things. And so I thought it was a little bit of a kind of a funny compliment. Uh-huh. And then, and then she said, but no, cause I don't agree with your arguments. I just don't feel I can fight back. Wow. So it's like intimidating, right? Or yeah, what, and, what would and you it, say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think she was, she just sort of felt stifled hmm. and she felt like she she wanted to explore. She was trying to make a big career decision and I, I thought she was missing out on uh, a perspective that I knew from our past interactions was uh, was not for, not comfortable for her. Like she thought she needed to accumulate degree after degree after degree to get successful. And when she had this mission that she had to come back to business school for an MBA after she'd already done an undergrad business degree, it's like nobody really needs six years of business education. <laughs> and my, I have this horrible instinct, Carrie, when somebody's passionate about one direction and I think they might have a blind spot to argue the polar opposite <laughs> as passionately as I can, even though I didn't really believe it. But that was my logic bully mode, telling her all the reasons that business school is a waste of time and money, huh. ironic coming from a business school professor, right? And... I think what what happened was I was I was taking her ownership away from her decision. Yeah. I was preventing her from really thinking the options through in an open-minded way by sort of trying to hammer a bunch of counterarguments at her. And I, I came away from that thinking, I don't want to be that person. And so now mm. what I do in those interactions is I start by asking, why are you here? Mm. Do you do you just want my stamp of approval on a decision you've already made? Because I'm I'm happy to give that. I'm not going to judge you. I want you to pursue whatever happiness and success means to you. Right? Are you here for me to point out holes in your thinking potentially? I'm happy to help you do that. Do you want me to stress test your decision making process and you know really go into challenge mode? And I I could certainly do that. And I never have regretted having that upfront discussion. Wow. Yeah, you know, some of the ways I, I've thought about that is sometimes you give a $5 answer to a five cent question. It's like, <laughs> right? It's so true. Yes. It's like, it's just like, should we go to Wharton or like, are you thinking about Stanford? And you you give them the 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 big essay on 17 reasons why business school isn't for you or whatever, right? And so that's a prosecutor mode. And then politician, anything else to say on politician? You're kind of currying favor, trying to win votes, trying to win the argument. 
Yeah, I, th- I think a politician mindset is leading us to tell people what we think they want to hear, <laughs> but not necessarily to change what we really believe. And so it's, um, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's putting on an act or a show mm. to try to impress or manipulate an audience. Uh, but, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really stick to what I, what, I, what I always thought was true here. And then thinking like a scientist, I know that is the metaphor that carries through the whole book, but like just in a nutshell, what does it mean to, to think like a scientist instead? So I don't mean it in the formal sense, right? Because right. I think a lot of people hear scientists, like, I don't have a lab coat. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to use a microscope or, right. or a telescope. What? But when I think about the values of being a scientist, I was, I was trained at least to be humble and curious. Mm. And that means I have to know what I don't know. I have to doubt a lot of my convictions and treat a bunch of my opinions or beliefs as just hypotheses right. and then be open to testing them. And I think, you know, what, this is actually something I've been rethinking since Think Again came out is I could have easily said, think like a scholar as opposed mm-hmm. to a scientist, uh, because I don't think you have to use the scientific method. Uh, I think what I like about the idea of being a scientist is you're open to running experiments and you're actually excited to discover that you might have been wrong because that means you've learned something hmm. and you're getting a little bit closer to the truth. And I think that's what a scholar does, right? I think that's what a religious scholar does. I think that's what you do when, uh, when you lead Bible study or when you encourage people to reflect on scripture is you're encouraging people to revisit ideas and assumptions that they might have been closed-minded on or that they might not have thought about as applying to their life in, you know, in ways that are very relevant right now. And so I, I think that it's interesting to me that part of what I, I mean by thinking like a scientist is actually what a good preacher would do. Hmm. Okay, say more about that, because I do, I do want to ask uh, some deconstructionist questions, uh, you know, like, oh, do you just think again, think again, think again until there's nothing left, right? You, you've, you've seen through it all, but let, let's talk, I, I love that thought. What about, what about what a good preacher would do? How would that preacher do it? Well, I don't know, right? So oh. I, I mean, that, that's the first thing I should disclose. I keep an ignorance list of all the things I'm just completely clueless on, and it's ever-growing. Uh, and it's it's just one a reminder to me to not you know try try to sound articulate on things that I really don't have experience or expertise in, but two also it's a prompt for me to go and get curious about the things I don't know. Mm. So that was part of why I was excited to have this conversation. Is here's a chance to learn from you what what an alternative to you know the kind of preaching that I talked about and think again looks like. So I would love to learn from you. What is what do you think an effective preacher does? Well, this is fascinating. Okay, so even back in in seminary. Now let me go back into your prosecutor mode, and 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 I don't want to flip the mic entirely, okay? But uh, but let's go back into so my one year in law, which was not very long, and I was like junior, junior, junior on the totem pole. I was I was a student actually, but they threw me in court every day, and so pretty much four or five days a week I was in court, and I only lost twice, and I learned how to win in that little tiny experiment of a run. But the way to win was I had to not only think about my client's position, I had to think about the judge. What does a judge need to know to rule in my favor? And I've got to present that evidence. And if you were my opponent in court, quote, opponent, I had to know what you were going to say. So I had to go through my mind and figure out, okay, Adam is going to say this, and he's going to claim this, and he's going to pull out this case law, but then the judge, in order to rule in my favor, needs X. And so if I can say these things, which are true, you're bound by truth, then we're probably going to come out on top. 
And so it mostly worked, which was, which was great. And I've taken that approach into preaching. It's like, if you're coming to our church for the first time, Adam, and you're skeptical, you're like, you know what? I actually went to school. I don't believe this stuff. I'm not sure Jesus rose from the dead. I, you know, the Bible's an ancient book. It's like, what are you thinking? I speak to that. And, and often the biggest, my, my favorite thing when I'm preaching a message is to think about the element of surprise. Because one of the things that happens is we think we know the text, right? We think we know, oh, Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Or, you know, yeah, yeah, we heard it a million times. Particularly if, like me, you grew up in church, you're like, yeah, 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 I can, I can rhyme it off. There's always surprise in the text. And so one of my jobs as a communicator is to say, well, why did that man who was very well regarded in the community fall down at the feet of Jesus? Like, do you know what that was culturally? I was like, nobody would do that. Like, no, nobody would do that. That would be like the president of the United States breaking security detail and uh, walking into a homeless shelter and sitting down in disguise and having a meal. It would be you like, know what, Carrie? I just, I have to say, that is an episode of Undercover Boss that I would watch in a heartbeat. Cool. Okay. I love well, that idea. Go on. Yeah, but isn't, isn't that so? It's surprise. It's like, what is, and if the text isn't surprising me, and it should, because I believe it's the word of God, then, you know, wow, here, here we are. So, so exegete that a little bit. Like, what is, what is good about that? What is not? Sorry, that's a theological term, exegete. Like, but do no, you use I'm, that I'm in all for exegesis. School? Absolutely. Yeah, exegesis, an, ex, an exegesis yeah. is, is like a, it's like a, an academic soliloquy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so tell, 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 like, break that down a little bit. What do you think? What's your reaction to that? Well, I, th- I think you're you're actually doing exactly what I've been trying to learn to do, right? Which mm. is to to describe something unexpected and then be curious about what is the reaction that provokes. And so this is very meta, hmm. um, but I'm going to try to answer your question as opposed to just being intrigued by the the modeling that you just did of of what I've been studying. So I think i think it, it it's it's really compelling to me at a at a basic level the the one caveat to that is i don't think i would have wanted to oppose you in a courtroom <laughs> I, I i think I, I i think it would have been a real challenge an uphill battle and i also think i would have liked you less than i like you right now oh uh, we go for lunch after it's fine oh good good okay <laughs> i i feel better now no but um i think i think the element of surprise is is exactly what's missing from so many conversations between people who disagree, um, mm. both of whom will complain that the other person is being stubborn and closed-minded. Right. And it's one of the things I love most about my life as an organizational psychologist is I, I get to do and read all these studies that contradict my expectations. And then there's a part of me that wants to, to downplay that surprise hmm. because how long have we been studying leadership and teams? We should we should have a pretty good set of predictions by now. And then there's another part of me that says, well, meteorologists have been doing this a long time and they have much more <laughs> precise measurements and they can't even tell me what the weather's going to be tomorrow. So human beings are even more complex uh, huh. than, you know, than than cloud systems. So I think amplifying that surprise and saying, yeah. well, let before we tell you what the data showed, what would you expect to play out here? Um, it's mm. one of my favorite things to do in the classroom with students. Right. It's one of it's one of my favorite things to experience as a reader or as a listener or an audience member. And I think my reaction to it is, I think you just gave a, a, a poignant description of why we all need to be open to thinking again. Mm. Not about everything, which we'll talk about. Yeah, but, yeah. 
your, your idea that there might be a surprise in the text, right? That, that is an invitation to rethink material that you already believe you've understood mm. and look at it through a new lens. Ah, and there you go. Why else would you keep rereading the same material over and over again if you weren't going to learn something new from it? Yeah, you're right. It's been, see, I would make the argument that if you're only hearing what you think you're going to hear, you're not actually reading the text properly when it comes to sacred text, that you're you're missing the point. Because if it's still not speaking to you, you're probably not reading it openly enough or curiously enough. And if if God isn't surprising you, I don't know whether you're worshiping God, you know, and I don't mean that in a heretical way. I just mean it as in a, a fresh way. You know, one of the other seminary moves I learned back in the 90s at U of T was, uh, I think it was David Buttrick talked about uh, contrapuntals. So apparently it's a football move. I'm not a sports guy, but it's a football move. But the idea is that what I took away from it was you anticipate the objection. It's a little bit like law. So if you're sitting there in my congregation on Sunday morning, I'm like, Adam, you know, and I don't know your personal background, but let's say you were skeptical, agnostic, atheist, whatever. I'd be like, what does Adam bring to this text? Oh, I know what he's going to object about. He's going to say, well, I don't actually think Jesus rose from the dead. Like that's like folklore. Or I don't, I don't actually believe that what you are presenting on the screen is what was written by Mark or Matthew 2000 years ago, that there's been all kinds of error and that kind of thing. And so then that's called a contrapuntal. You go and you kind of bring that up and say, well, some of you are probably thinking like, I, I don't even know whether I can trust the Bible or I don't even know whether Jesus rose from the dead. And I can't solve that for you in five minutes, but let me give you a couple of thoughts around that issue. Boom, boom, boom. And then we, because then what I've done is I've dislodged an objection that you would have spent the rest of the message thinking about and now you can say, okay, well, I don't think he convinced me, but I can at least follow the argument for another 20 minutes or so. Yes. Any thoughts on that? Yes. I, I think that's so effective. Um, it's, it's something I've watched entrepreneurs do. Mm. Uh, my, my favorite example you might remember from originals is Rufus Griscom, who pitched his startup by saying, here are the three reasons you should not invest in Yes. It. And by anticipating investors and objections, he showed that he was yeah, that he, he wasn't he wasn't drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, mm. He actually was thinking critically. He also made it clear that he must be pretty confident in the strengths of his startup if he was willing <laughs> to admit all the weaknesses. Yeah. And he made it harder for the investors to think of their own objections. And the harder they had to work to find the flaws in his argument, the less flawed they thought his argument was. And I, I think you've just you've just done a version of that. Mm. What I think is is also kind of well this is this is surprising about it to me is it makes me think a little bit about the difference between what you know and what you believe ah. so i i i would say my stance is open right i i i don't I, i'm not committed to a particular religious doctrine because sure. i don't know right um but i'm very, like but i i can't imagine how, how this universe could exist without some force that we don't understand yeah. Right. And so like that's something I could see believing in. And I would be much more receptive to you saying, you know what, um, how do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, I actually can't know that. Right. I can't right. I can't put you right. in a time machine and show you that it happened. Um, but here's here's why I, I've chosen to believe it. I'm like, mm. oh, all right. Like I could get behind that. Is that is that the kind of direction that you were taught to go or is that taking it too far? Oh, for you? That's a great question. I don't know that I was taught that. I think I learned that. Um, 
I think I learned that over time. I learned it through trial and error. I've been at it for 25, 30 years now between courtrooms and, you know, pulpits and writing. And I think that is an element of, there was a certainty to dialogue three decades ago that has vaporized in the last few years. And now with the explosion of the internet, which I, I hope we'll get to, you know, and everybody having an opinion, everybody being able to air it, I, I, I think it requires a different kind of apologetics where, um, you know, apologetics, literally apologia means defense, right? And when you come across as defensive, I would rather come across as open. I would rather come across as, I've got questions about the text too. So let me show you what has helped me come to this conclusion rather than, here's what you better believe. We got 13 minutes left on this message. So, you know. You are, you are talking like a scientist and preaching to my choir in doing so. (laughs) (laughs) If, there if that you makes go. any sense, uh, that I mean that that resonates, and it it makes me think of something else that I I'm very curious to get your reaction to. Just while yeah, we're, yeah. we're on this general theme, uh, a friend told me the other day that uh, that she learned that the definition of repent is not what she thought it was. Wow! I, when it, when I heard repent, I, I pictured someone saying, "I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. Maybe mm-hmm. even I feel ashamed." And she said the original the original meaning of repent is actually to rethink, to, you, to reconsider your past actions and maybe chart a different course moving forward. And I wondered if you could if you could either yeah. challenge that or elaborate on it. She's much closer than I feel terrible and I'm ashamed and you know here I come begging for mercy. My understanding and I got we we can do this when we're off the air. I'll pull out the Greek dictionary, is that it means to turn, that it that it literally means. I was I was going to attack you, but now now I'm going to step back. Now I'm not going to do it. So it means it means a change. So it doesn't necessarily accompany. So I think her definition, like to rethink your position, to to go, oh, I could be wrong. Yeah, I would say that's probably within because usually what happens when you look at the original Greek, there's a range of meanings. So she could be very very accurate on that. Yeah, it certainly doesn't mean grovel, cry, sniffle, and maybe on a good day I'll forgive you. Like that's not what it means. Well, that I mean, right, right there, right. That that immediately makes the idea of repenting much more appealing to all your skeptics, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And 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 it's so funny because you walk in with all this baggage, right? Some of which because you probably heard repentance preached exactly according to the stereotype that that you would. But often, and that's the element of surprise. Like the first time I realize that that is not what repentance means, I'm like, oh, well. That's interesting because with my personality, I don't always feel remorse. Like, you know, I should, but maybe I don't. And and then other people, they they struggle with guilt so badly that they think, I'm never going to get over this. Like, I'll never be good enough. I'll never be forgiven. And huh. see? Say more about that. What, what do you mean oh. when you say your personality means you may not feel as much remorse as you should? I don't know whether you know the Enneagram or not. It's a personality typing system. So I'm an eight- so what it means is I tend to be a bull in the china shop. And, and so often I will step on your feelings. And I have, I have people in my life I've been with for years who, you know, are on my team, on my staff, and they're twos, and they feel everything. So, you know, I used to have people pull me out of the meeting. It's like, do you know you totally insulted him? And she was almost in tears at the end of it. And I'm like, what? I'm like, oh, sorry. I didn't even see it. And so I would, I would be a little less sensitive and other people would feel that more. So that's that's what I would mean by that. Very interesting. Yeah. Do you I know was, what you I are was, on the Enneagram? Uh, so 
I, I should say full disclosure, I'm I, I'm on the fence about the Enneagram because sure. on the one hand, I think I think the the categories are extremely informative for people. And you can, you know, you can immediately identify how you differ from other people using it. Hmm. I think it hasn't kept up with modern developments in psychology and psychometrics. And so some of the items end up probably misclassifying people. And I'm not sure that we actually need all nine categories. Um, my, my colleague, Brian Little, just did a, a neat analysis where he showed that there might actually be five or six underlying them. Oh, um, but okay. I think it's it's one of it's one of the most intuitively appealing frameworks I've ever seen. So you're, you're is it protector? It's a challenger, challenger, but it does have protective. Yeah, definitely. Like once you're in, I got gotcha. you. Like, yeah, got it. Yeah, I yeah. think every time I've taken it, I've been something. I've been two, three, or five, which I want to say are I'm trying to remember. There's um, there's like supporter advisor is one of mm -hmm. them. One is um, is achiever, and mm -hmm. I forget. And five, my wife's a five, so uh, that is Ian Cron calls that type the investigator. So this is somebody who's very research driven, kind of hidden, cryptic, mm -hmm. all those things. Well, this is fascinating. We're going to have to get you to uh, reinvent apologetics in in um, and preaching for us for the twenty first century. <laughs> no, I'm not sure I'm qualified to do that. Uh, yeah, but the framework's fascinating. I like the reframing of it. Back to you. Okay. So uh, one of the questions I did have, and I think you get to it at the end of the book, and, and I know you believe this, like what happens if you have a core belief? Like, you know, my faith is very central to, to who I am and what I built my life on. And yeah, I'm open to looking at this passage in a fresh way and, you know, really surprised by this. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, Jesus, I continue to be convinced he was risen from the dead. Can you get to the level of deconstructionism where you rethink everything so much that you no longer believe anything? Like, is there a line? Yeah, I, I don't think I'd want anyone to be there because mm. at that point, you might just be a nihilist. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, right? It doesn't sound like fun or, uh -huh. or a productive way to live. Uh, I, think, I think that we should, I guess I think about this as a, as a spectrum, right? Where right. Most people are probably too far to the left of the sweet spot of rethinking in their lives overall. Um, and that means, you know, they're, they're too inclined to prefer the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt. Mm. It means they're too interested in surrounding themselves with people who agree with their conclusions as opposed to those who might challenge their thought process. Right. And so what I want to do is I want to, it's not, I don't think it's my place to tell anyone how much rethinking they should do, let alone what they should rethink. What I want to do is just encourage people to reflect on, am I doing enough rethinking? And Carrie, the reason, the reason that I, I care so much about that is I think the vast majority of our regrets are situations where we did our rethinking in hindsight. And we Ooh. said, oh, I, I wish I had reconsidered whether this job was the right fit for me or whether I should have left this toxic culture or whether I should have been in a relationship with this person who you know, was clearly not aligned with my values. Hmm. And I think if we did a little bit more of the rethinking up front, we could avoid some of those regrets. <laughs> that is so good. Um, and yeah, I think, I think there are core values. Like I tend to see from what I know of you publicly reading your books and listening to your podcast, like you, you, you would love the values of compassion and empathy. I would say those would be core. So you're not talking about like rethinking those over and over again. No, I mean, if you, you, could, you could give me every single argument you can think of for why I should be a selfish jerk. <laughs> and I'm probably not going to be that motivated to rethink it. 
right. I, I'll always look for another way to say, look, you can try to be kind and generous and achieve success. Uh, and the good news is I have, a, I have a lot of evidence on on different ways of doing that. So I've, uh, I've, I've went and I feel like I pressure tested that, that set of values. But I think you just made an important distinction between beliefs and values that's mm. worth double clicking on. Okay. I think that we should be quicker to rethink our beliefs than our values. Can you I think of a belief as something that you accept as true. Mm. I think of a value as a principle that you hold as important. And so when I think about my values, I'd say generosity, excellence, integrity, and freedom are maybe the top four. Mm. Although I'm, I'm open to revisiting that, yeah. tinkering a little bit. But I want to stay as flexible as I can about the best ways to live those values. I, I might find out tomorrow that the way I was pursuing excellence, which makes me late for meetings all the time, is, is actually not a generous way to treat people. Actually, I found that out several times. I really need to work on it. right? But I want to be re open to rethinking my habits and my beliefs about what daily behaviors and practices uh, will, will best allow me to, to express those values and make them core to my life. And so to take this back to, to your original question, your faith is really interesting because you could position that as a belief or a value. No, exactly. Yeah. So what, what parts of, of that system of thinking for you are belief versus value? Yeah, I'd really have to, again, double click on what you mean by that. But I think it's both. Like, you know, foundational to me is the word of God's the word of God. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is God. And beyond that, it's like, you know, I'm not one of those people who has a doctrinal statement that you need a dump truck to read, right? Here it is. I just delivered it to you. It's it's 17,000 pages. Enjoy it. I'm not one of those people. It's pretty, my my faith is is very orthodox in the sense that it's traditional. It tends to be what Christians have believed over the centuries as opposed to what some guy on the internet believed yesterday. So um, it's, it's, it's less propositional and more foundational to historic Christianity and hopefully first century Christianity. Um, as far as my values go, yeah, there are things that are, I think, I think beliefs are becoming clearer and things I used to believe, I don't believe in the same way. And that's not, oh, I become more progressive or I become more whatever. It's just like, no, having wrestled with the text, I think the text is actually demanding of me things that didn't used to demand in terms of kindness and humility and patience and um, you know, that, that this is, this is a very different way. I have a Sunday prayer ritual where I go through some of the, what they call the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that they would be more manifest in my life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, and a few others. So, you know, those I'm revisiting on a regular basis. And then that's probably also feeding into my values. I'd really, I don't know, like I'd really have to think about that, but there are some core beliefs, like we men mentioned it a few times, Jesus rose from the dead and you know, he is God that I would be like, yeah, it would take a lot for you to to dislodge that from the center of my life. So yeah, that's my take on that. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't want to dislodge that, right? Because mm. I also, I can't disprove that. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Completely outside the realm of my capabilities as a social scientist. And I mean, the audacity also to tell you that I know what really happened. Right. Please, come on. Uh, this is this is your, this is your uh, field, not mine. I, I think there's something there's something interesting, maybe a hunch or a question that mm. I want to explore a little bit here. And you you may decide that this is not not an interesting line of uh, of inquiry, but I'm I'm curious about it, so I want to ask you about it. Um, I want to run a little thought experiment and okay. say, 
Well, first of all, let me let me attest to one of my assumptions here. Um, Jesus did not write the Bible, correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, how many how many years later do we think it was captured? Depending on who you read, the scholars, there's a range. But you know, the Gospel of Mark may have been complete by thirty years after the resurrection, a little under thirty years after the resurrection of Jesus. So within decades, and it was carried through in oral tradition and fragment. Um, but most people would say that the the four Gospels in the New Testament was composed between 60-ish A.D., some would put it in the 50s, through to 90, about 90, 91. 96, Revelation goes maybe to 96 A.D., so within the first lifetime of Jesus. Okay, great. That's that's helpful. So we're looking at some number of decades. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, so w- one of the things I think about with my with my psychologist hat on is a game of telephone. Okay. And how if you've ever told a story to somebody and then they tell it to someone else, they're, you know, there are pieces that get lost in yeah, translation. Yeah. And so let's just imagine for a moment that a little bit of that happened over the 30 or 60 years between uh, Jesus's teachings and then the, the transcription of some of the, the core texts. Okay. And let's say that we, I don't know, we discovered an earlier iteration uh, that we can authenticate. Right. And it turns out that Jesus said, hate thy neighbor. Right. Okay. For argument's and, sake, and yeah. it's authenticated. Um, it's a it's a source closer to Jesus than the text you've been relying on your whole life. And I know this is such a weird thought experiment. Hmm. My question is: Would you rethink your stance on what what you owe to your neighbor based on that? Ooh, that went in a very diff- different direction than I thought you were going to take it. <laughs> well done. I, I, I think I think you you probably have a sense of why I'm going there, but I want to uh-huh. I, I want to play it out for a second, and then we can figure out whether it makes any sense. No, I'm not a person of hate. And, you know, I would want to... Yes! Yes, I'm not a person of hate. I do not want that. I would want the other text to be true about Jesus. And we'd have a long discussion about the scholarship of that fragment, et cetera, et cetera. And we'd have a really good look at it. But no, I would want to be a person of love. And one of the principles of Calvinism, I don't know whether it's Calvinism or not, but the clear interprets the unclear. Because you can find that Bible verse fragment and run a million miles in the wrong direction with it. But there are times where the Bible's evidently clear. The Bible's been very clear, Old Testament, New Testament about love. So yeah, I, I would say, no, I'm, I'm still committed to love. We'll have a conversation about the text. That's amazing. Okay, so that hypothesis, I think, was supported. Okay. My, my, my hunch was that there are certain values you hold so dear mm-hmm. that you would you would stick to them even in the face of some of your beliefs being challenged. Yes. And I would say what's formed that as a foundation, my love though, because this is chicken and the egg thing. I grew up with Christian parents. That was something that I learned as a child. It's something I have believed for 55 years and, you know, all that stuff. And now I look at it and go, hmm, Jesus was about hate. We need to have a really serious conversation about that, and I need to really see the scholarship. But it's an interesting thought experiment. So I I have one for you, if we're going to play along, okay? If church felt more like this, what do you think would happen? I think that a lot of people who choose other careers would be drawn to the clergy in some way, I think is the first thing that comes to mind. I think the second thing is that a lot of people who are more agnostic uh, or, you know, not even agnostic, right, but just not deeply religious uh, yeah. would be excited about about church as not just a source of community, but actually a place to go to explore and learn. Uh, yeah. In other words, what school is supposed to be? Oh, 
Uh, I'm going to get emotional. That uh, That's really cool to hear you say that. That's been been a hope of mine, a prayer of mine for a long time. And I think, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes that we're closed-minded. Um, we're going to beat you over the head with our logic. And I want, I want to get back into logic bullies, but I'm just going to breathe that in. Thank you. That was a gift. That was a gift. No, 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 please. I... I, I think I mean it's it's completely the opposite of what people who are who are not attached to a religious institution expect right? When, right, when they think right. about about entering that world. And I I mean I think it's it's a complete rethinking of mm. the role of religion in American society at some level, right? Because at least if you take our and obviously this is this is not your strand of Christianity, but right. If you think about the founding of America, right, this is a Protestant country. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Protestant work ethic still dominates our workplaces. Um, The vast majority of CEOs come from a Protestant background. Hmm. Um, You know, we we tend to see hard work as a virtue um, inherently, regardless of what purpose you're working toward uh, and whether that's a worthy end or a noble cause. Yes. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Exactly. And so, you know, I think this is this is a really interesting and different way of imagining the role that that religious teachings could play in people's lives, which is this is a, a place to explore important questions about the meaning of life. And I'm sure just uh, this might be a little tangent, but I, I, you must have read Derek Thompson's Atlantic article, I think, two years ago on workism. Oh, I read parts of it. Yeah, I rem- I have a I couldn't quote it to you, but I, I am familiar with that. Yep. The 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 thing that that really stuck with me about it was that you know as religion has declined in American society, people have acted as if work could be a substitute, oh. and that the the meaning and the community and the frankly the the understanding uh, that I expected to come from you know really engaging with questions that are much larger than myself. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm gonna get that from my job really. And it's no wonder that people are are often miserable and depressed at work because that is an unrealistic set of expectations. Well, that would be a fun. Okay, you've just tapped into mother load of an idea about what is replacing faith in America, because I think you can make the same argument. I've heard Tim Keller, a preacher in New York City, make this argument that uh, if you look at all the pressure on marriage today, um you know, children, the worship of children, the worship of spouses, the worship of work, the worship of ideas, ideology, politics. I mean, there's a vacuum right now in American life and so many contenders, uh, people are just reaching out for something. And I I would want to say, to be fair, you have plenty of evidence, unfortunately, very recent evidence that the church is full of closed-minded people who are not open to ideas. You know, all you have to do is accidentally follow someone on on Instagram and you're you're in that which which again, I really appreciate about your book because you go there toward the end where you talk about the way we talk as a culture and the way we think as a culture. So Oh, this is so fresh, man. I, I feel like uh we could have dinner and talk for a couple hours about just that one thing you raised about um, what is filling the void of religion in America? That's, I mean, that that's a book waiting to be written. It's mm-hmm. it's a whole podcast series in and of itself. It is. Uh, wait, are it, you? And also, are you saying we're not having dinner right now? This feels. <laughs> I know it really does, doesn't it? Oh man, Adam. And and it, so you think work is 
what are the dangers? Like in that workism article, just to give people, because we do have a lot of entrepreneurs listening as well. So, uh, you know, and I've, I've, you know, being a preacher, it's like, I'm probably not going to have drugs or alcohol as my vice, but like throw yourself into work, you get a raise and a promotion, right? So um, why can't work, you're an organizational psychologist. Why can't work bear that load? Well, I don't think organizations exist to give purpose to the people who work in them, right? Bingo. I think that's, sadly, I, I would love it if organizations did. And mm. we do know mission-driven companies. But I don't, I don't think that's why most organizations are started. Mm. Uh, I, think, I think that's a challenge. I think it, it scares me anytime somebody calls a company a family. Like, really? Would your, would your family fire you if you did a bad job for a couple of weeks? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's not a standard that we can match up to. Call it a community. What you're trying to say is, you know, this is not just a transaction. This is a place where you can belong. But communities expel people when they violate their values. Uh, and I think that, you know, that that's another thing that that is just a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. I think another challenge is that when work fills this void in our lives, uh, it's too easy for people to become compulsive workaholics. Mm. where they feel guilty if they're not working. Uh, they put undue pressure and stress on themselves. And there are actually physiological health costs of that, right? Mm -hmm. We know that um, that you're at higher risk for heart attacks, for example, uh, if you become a compulsive workaholic. Yeah. Uh, my colleague Nancy Rothbard has a nice alternative to this. She calls it being an engaged workaholic, uh, hmm. where you still may work a lot. And I think, Carrie, you might be one of these people. Uh, but you work a lot because you're passionate about it. Uh, you enjoy the work and you also think it's making the world a better place. And mm -hmm. it turns out that there there are no documented health costs of of that kind of workaholism as long as it's a choice as opposed really? to just an obligation. Yeah, this is kind of my retirement. Like this is this is what I hope to do for the next few decades. And it is fun nine mornings out of 10 when I get up and get to have conversations like this and uh, and you know that there, there it's, it's funny. I heard someone say meaning isn't something you get from your work. It's what you bring to your work. And that's does that good. make sense as an yeah, organizational psychologist? It does. It tracks with what my colleague Amy Resneski has studied for years, which is that meaning isn't really something that you seek. It's more something that you make or create. Mm. Uh, and she's, she's found, you read about this and think again, she and Jane Dutton did these wonderful studies of job crafters people who take these, you know, these job descriptions that were made for somebody else or some faceless group of people and say, well, this doesn't capture all of my passions and values and strengths. Let me become an architect of my own job and customize it so that I can make it a little bit more me and bring more of myself to this work. Ah, okay. Well, we got to get into some of the ideas and think again, because we barely scratched the surface, but this has been absolutely riveting, Adam. And thanks for going there. This is, uh, this is, this is, no, this thank is you. I'm enjoying it. Helping yeah, a lot of leaders. Let's talk about Mount Stupid. I love Mount Stupid. You've got beautiful graphs in there. And uh, what do you call the chapter? You know, you're stranded at the summit of Mount Stupid or something like that. What is Mount Stupid? Mount Stupid is the point where you start to gain experience. It might be knowledge or skill. Mm -hmm. And your confidence climbs much faster than your competence. And pretty soon, you think you know a lot more than you do. And you fall victim to this terrible combination of arrogance and ignorance. Uh, and the worst part is that you don't know you're incompetent. Mm. 
because you just know how much more you know than you did yesterday and how much better you've gotten than you were last month. And you can't see how limited your own expertise is. One of my favorite graphics in the book, this is skipping way ahead, was the uh, flat earth um, diagram <laughs> that you put toward the end, which is somebody who just discovered that the earth is flat and, and this loop that they kind of do where they discover it, they share it with their friends. They become evangelical preachers about how the earth is flat and everyone's wrong. Is Mount Stupid kind of related? And I'm not talking about flat earthers versus round earthers, but is that sort of that whole thing? Like I just discovered something in the, in the you know, I read about um, anti-vaxxers on the internet or that kind of thing. Can, can you describe that mindset of what makes, because we just came off a year of unprecedented conspiracy theories, like, Stuff that if you had gone ahead in 2010 and showed us what we'd be saying in 2020, we'd be like, you're talking about another species or civilization. And yet here we are, and everyone's got their own pet theory about everything now. And that diagram, I, I want to frame it and put it up somewhere so I can see it. So can you unpack that for us? Because it feels like Mount Stupid. Yeah, I wouldn't have believed it, honestly, if you'd told me in 2010, this is where we would be. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I, I think about it in terms of an overconfidence cycle mm. where you start out, I think, you know, if, if we take the flat earth <laughs> conspiracy <laughs> theory as an example, yeah. uh, you, there, there's actually a bunch of work in psychology on, on why people get attached to conspiracy theories. And I've seen two really interesting explanations for it. One is uh, what's called the cynical genius illusion which is the idea that um, you know, a lot of times we think cynical people are, are smarter than their peers, and that's how they show, well, I can't be won over. I'm not gullible. Right. Um, on average, they tend to be less intelligent than their peers, and cynicism is a defense mechanism against being outsmarted. Uh, this knee-jerk, <sighs> that's not true, uh, and that, that's how you avoid getting manipulated. The other, the other big motivation, it seems, behind um, the, the popularity of conspiracy theories is the desire to believe that a chaotic world is actually uh, in control, um, that it's you know it's predictable, that uh, that it's you know that that bad things don't happen at random, right? That good things happen to good people, and you know I think that <laughs> this is this is also you know part of a lot of religious teachings, right? Mm -hmm. I don't need to mm -hmm. I, I don't need to tell you that, but the conspiracy theory version of this is, well, I don't want to believe that you know that a pandemic could just happen. Uh, that's horrible. I don't want to live in that kind of world. That is an unjust world. And so let me figure out who the evil people are that orchestrated this in a lab to, you know, to try to profit from it. And then what happens when you meet a few other people who share that view is you start to take pride in having special knowledge that other people don't have. And you're, you're in the know. And often you're somebody who's been an outsider before. Uh, right. And maybe felt like you weren't respected for your intelligence or you didn't have expertise. And that makes you convinced that you're right. It leads you into a trap of confirmation bias and desirability bias where you only see what you expect and want to see. Right. And then that just kind of reinforces your pride and you become arrogant. And uh, the more you affiliate with a group of people who share that beliefs, the more you end up with a polarized set of views. Uh, because the way people gain status in a group of flat earthers is to be the most extreme flat earther. Right? Like I, I, I am more, I am more all in on this than anybody else. I know more about why the earth is shaped like a Frisbee than anyone else. Um, and that pushes the whole group a little bit more and more toward the extreme. Well, logical bullying. I remember at a counseling session years ago, I was in my thirties and 
you know, I, I had a lot of time in university, et cetera. But I remember my counselor saying that knowledge is power, but I was using it as a defense and as something that I could hold over people. And I've never forgotten that. And you can see that at play, right? That knowledge is actually supposed to be used to serve people and to serve others. Rather, does that resonate? Yes, I think so many people think that knowledge is a weapon to wield Mm -hmm. when in fact it's a resource to share. Wow. Yep. And so let's talk about, because this goes into like the process, what is it, logical bullying? And there's a certain sense in that, even in the flat earther conspiracy, whether that, and pick your issue, right? Whatever conspiracy theory you're on that the virus was manufactured in a lab in China and you know, this happened and that happened and we figured it all out and now we know and they're, the authorities are keeping us from this. And let's talk about echo chambers, which is related to conspiracy theories. So I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Tristan Harris and others like him. Talk about, because I've been writing about that, trying to alert listeners to like, we all end up in this echo chamber and I would love for you to speak to people who would say, well, you guys seem so open, but like everything's so clear and black and white to me. And I've, I've got this armchair quarterback perspective on the world and I know what's wrong and you don't. What, what would you say about echo chambers and what are the dangers there? I think the, the biggest danger of being trapped in an echo chamber is that you spend all your time affirming what you already believe mm-hmm. rather than testing and questioning and evolving your beliefs, which Another name for that is learning. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all want to be lifelong learners. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Carrie, the way that I've, I've tried to navigate this personally, because, you know, I'm, I I can't write a book like Think Again without worrying that I'm going to be a hypocrite. Right. And I, I really, I've actually shifted my view on this whole idea that you should, you should practice what you preach. Uh, After, after writing about, you know, some of, some of the risks of thinking too often like a preacher, I thought, well, maybe, maybe this should go the other way, that you should only preach things that you already practice. Oh. And that, and that way you don't end up with as many moments of, <laughs> of, of... Oh, that's interesting. You know, I made that shift in my preaching years ago. I'm like, I will only talk about something if it's something I feel I have some level of integration in my life with, or if I'm actively working on it and can speak with integrity about it. I'm so glad you said the latter part of that because I think I, I overcorrected on this one and I mm. said, all right, if I haven't mastered something, I can't talk about it. Well, then I got two subjects, maybe. <laughs> That's one more than me. On a good day. Maybe one. Talk to my wife, okay? So- no, no, but that, that's such a, it's such a helpful reframe to say, okay, if I'm working on it, then part of the reason that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, in some cases, preach it is the more I say it out loud, the more I'm pushing myself to rethink the habits I'm trying to let go of. Correct. Uh, so by yeah. telling you, I have a bad habit of going into prosecutor or logic bully mode. I'm trying to talk myself out of that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and complete this rethinking cycle that I've been going through for a number of years. And I guess just thinking out loud about this a little bit, uh, I think that where I've gone with it is I've said, okay, you know, my, my natural instinct is I, I like to be right. Uh, it bothers me when other people are wrong. So I'm going to follow people on social media. I'm going to listen to to the podcasts of people who generally reach the same conclusions I do. And I'm not going to say I was learning nothing doing that, but I was mostly learning more reasons to think the things I already think. Hmm. 
And I didn't feel like I was evolving much in my understanding of the world. Uh, in some cases, maybe I was going a little deeper, but I was narrowing myself. Yeah. And so I, I shifted my goal a little bit and I said, okay, let me find people who are, who are people who are both open-minded and high integrity in their, in their thinking and their reasoning. So they, they are, when they argue, they argue in good faith because they're trying to get to the truth, not because they want to troll somebody. Hmm. And they do take a discovery that they were wrong as, you know, kind of a, a joyful opportunity for learning. And I want to listen to those people regardless of what conclusions they reach, because those are, those are the kinds of thinkers that I want to learn from. And I think my aha moment was learning is not about the knowledge I accumulate in my head as much as it is the skills that I gain for how to learn. And I want to listen to people who are great learners, not people who always have the right answers. There is, I don't know whether you're familiar with this phrase at all. It's an obscure interview, but you know Yuval Noah Harari's work, right? Brilliant, brilliant. And in so many ways. And there was an interview a couple of years ago, Chris Anderson from TED did with him. And he said, what is the greatest existential threat to humanity? And he said, human hacking. And it's the, are you familiar with his, his work on that? I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah. But my understanding of what he said with human hacking is, to the extent the algorithm is at work and AI is at work, we lose the ability to think for ourselves. We have the illusion that we're thinking again. We have the illusion, but you know, back to that flat earth diagram, right? It's like, I just found, now I'm more of a flat earther than you are. Now I'm more of an anti-vaxxer than you are because you're not even as enlightened as I am. And he says, it's that loss of agency and the ability to think independently that is the greatest existential threat to humanity. Any thoughts on that? I'd love your take on that. Intriguing. It is. Keeps me up at night some nights. Me too. It's, it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I've talked to Tristan Harris about this a bit. Uh, and I think this is, this is a great area for me to, <laughs> to try to embrace some intellectual humility because I, I don't know a whole lot about AI, right? I'm, right. I'm very much a consumer of these ideas, not a producer of them. And I'm glad that Yuval is, is weighing in because there, there's an old joke that it's hard to predict the future and historians can't even predict the past with perfect accuracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I just, I find it really hard to imagine that I have a crystal ball and have a clear understanding of, of where artificial intelligence is taking us. But I think what, one of the things that I've, I've become more open to than I was before um, is this possibility that, that as you described, that AI can create the illusion of free choice uh, without actually offering it, right? That the, the, and this goes to the echo chamber point, that if algorithms are engineered to only show me things that I like, and I only like the things that are consistent with what I preach or that are the opposite of what I prosecute, then over time, the algorithms are going to serve me up basically um, the worst version of my own pre-existing convictions, right? <laughs> to just drill those into my mind. You become more extreme. Yeah, and I think that's a scary proposition. I become mm. more extreme and more entrenched. Mm. Both, right? So it's, I, I'm further down one end of the spectrum and it's also much harder for me to let go because I built up all this cognitive support and reinforcement for whatever set of opinions I'm attached to. Which completely jettisons the kind of dialogue we had half an hour ago in this conversation, right? Like that is impossible. That kind of, if I'm entrenched and I'm like, Adam, I'm going to show you how you're wrong 
and how I'm right, you, you're out the door. And even if you have to sit there for 30 minutes, you, you've tuned out. Completely. And I can see that being, you know, being a real, I, I can see that being a source of peril for the human race. Uh, you know, what's the timeline for that? I think that it's longer from my read of the data as an outsider than, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people are sounding the alarm about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that in five years we're going to have computers doing all our thinking for us. What we could have, though, in five years is a very subtle set of, uh, of slippery slopes that we fall down where we're not seeing how much we're, you know, we're, we're trapping ourselves in one of those echo chambers. And I do think it's a great time to, to rethink algorithms and ask, mm. is, there, you know, is there a way to, to gauge what a thoughtful conversation looks like, uh, a conversation that opens both people's minds as opposed to one that just makes everyone feel good? That's why I think your book is so important. Okay, uh, we're coming up on time. I want to respect your time. I want to ask a question, and this doesn't feel like a place to stop, but I think it's a great place to stop. Probably the most moving part of the book was where you told the story of a Black musician who befriended the um, leader of the local chapter of the KKK. They became friends, and he actually ultimately resigned his KKK membership. And then also a story out of Quebec, Canada, of an ardent anti-vaxxer who ended up having her mind changed about vaccinations, had her whole family vaccinated. Two very real issues, racism and the whole anti-vaxxer thing. But the tactic used to disarm both in their opposition to it was so surprising. And maybe that is a good place to finish. So what did the vaccine whisperer do? What did, I'm trying to remember his name, was it Daryl? Yeah, Daryl Davis. Yeah, yeah. What did he do to disarm the tension between him and a white supremacist? Well, in both cases, the, the, the opening of the other person's mind came from an unusual combination of non-judgmental asking questions and listening carefully to the answers. Mm-hmm. And it's the opposite of what any well-trained prosecutor or logic bully would want mm-hmm. to do, right? Let me tell you why racism is wrong. Let me tell you, let me tell you why it's stupid not to get this vaccine for your kids. Yep. I mean, it's, it's clear as day. How could you not see it? You must mm-hmm. be an idiot. And what what Daryl did was uh, he, I, I think the most memorable interaction of, of all the ones that I learned about from him was the one where he sat down with a KKK member and asked, how did you arrive at this belief? How did you arrive at this belief that, uh, that black people are, are bad or inferior? And this KKK member said, well, you know, um, look at crime, you know, look at, look at all the black criminals out there. And, you know, it must be because, you know, black people have, uh, they have smaller brains, uh, they have more violent cultures, you know, this is, this is a real problem. And I, this should not be Daryl Davis's responsibility as a black man, right? Mm -hmm. To have to go and educate the hate out of a white supremacist. But, uh, Daryl has the courage and the conviction to take it upon himself. And instead of getting angry, which he had the right to do, I think, in that situation, he said, well, I, I'm black and I, I haven't committed any violent crimes. And the KKK member said, well, your your gene must be latent. It hasn't come out yet. I, I, I would have lost it at that point, right? <laughs> yeah, I can't even yeah, imagine yeah. being a black man and being told that to my face, right? And 
Daryl, <laughs> you know, lets it lets it sit, and he asks the he asks the KKK member to um, to name some serial killers, and he says, you know, every every serial killer I can think of is white. I guess I guess that means you know maybe maybe you're a serial killer and your gene is latent; it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> And the guy got very quiet, changed the subject, didn't bring it up. For months and months later, he walked away from the KKK and told Daryl it was that series of questions that changed his mind. Hmm. Hmm. And I have to tell you, the, the big aha I took out of this and the, the vaccine whisperer technique is very similar, which is just try to, trying to understand how did you arrive at these beliefs and you know, what, what do they really mean for you? Um, if you want to change what someone believes, you almost always have to start with understanding what they want to believe. Mm. Right? Our beliefs are driven by our motivations. And it's a lot harder to force someone to change their beliefs than it is to help them find their own motivation to change. I think the only way you can do that is, is to ask genuinely open-ended questions about what would lead you. Would you ever consider mm. not hating somebody who looked different from you? Are there circumstances where you might consider getting a vaccine? What would those look like? And then it's that person's job to decide whether they want to change. Oh, Adam, this has been so rich. I can't thank you enough. Wow. Um, I would love for you to tell people who aren't connected with you online about your podcast, where to find you online. And then uh, obviously, for those of you who are, are watching, here's the book. Uh, the whole thing is devoured, dog-eared, um, noted, and will be a reread. So I can't recommend it enough. Uh, tell us where we can find you online, Adam. Oh, thank you, Carrie. It's uh, it really means a lot to me that you <laughs> you enjoyed the book and that uh, you were willing to willing to recommend it. I guess I would say uh, I host a TED podcast called Work Life, and it's designed to make work better. Uh, I have a, a regular newsletter called Granted, uh, which is about the, the latest updates on work and psychology that I've found interesting. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I would say that I came into this conversation hoping I would get to rethink some things. And you've definitely accomplished that for me. And I, I hope also that, you know, that, that we can move toward a world where people recognize that rethinking doesn't mean you always have to change your mind. It just means that you're open to reflecting and reconsidering some of the convictions that might not be serving you well anymore or that might have made sense in a version of the world that existed 20 or 30 years ago, but that we don't quite live in anymore. Hmm. And I think that kind of mental flexibility is is something that would probably make us all into slightly better leaders and also better partners too. Much better leaders. I would say one of the things the book has done for me, because I've noticed that age and closed-mindedness are frequent companions, that the older people get, the more cynical they get, and the more closed-minded they get. It's like, well, I used to believe that when I was younger, but, and, you know, as I, as I head into the next, God willing, 20, 30 years, whatever's left, I, I want to become more open-minded, more curious, because I discover the 80-year-olds that I really admire, they're all those things. And they still have their convictions. They still have their deep core beliefs that perhaps have been with them. But I find that rethinking has made me a stronger Christian, not a weaker believer. That there are some things that needed to go, but then there are some things that are like, wow, I am more core on this than I was because I was open to different points of view. And I think the truth has a way of standing up to scrutiny. 
I think that's uh, that's just beautifully put. And yeah, I mean, worst case scenario, you listen to your critics and they make you stronger. <laughs> well, and 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 you learn from them and you become friends with them, which is which is a joy. Uh, something something we could all use more of. And <laughs> you know, Carrie, I guess I would say from from a recovering faux prosecutor to a former lawyer, current preacher, <laughs> once upon a time would be politician. Uh, I think that this is this has been a conversation where I've come away with a bunch of new questions to ask, and that to me is the best thing that could happen in a conversation. Well, um, we got to a tenth of what I wanted to cover, so that gives you an idea of of what uh, where where my mind is. I feel exactly the same way, Adam. Thank you. This has been a gift, just a pure joy, and a reminder to me why we do this show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a delight, was it not? Uh, Adam, again, thank you so much. I do hope you will buy his book. It is one of my favorite reads in years and uh, entertaining. Like I said, there's cartoons and pictures and he's funny and the charts are, are, are off the chart. They're really great. And uh, just the ideas. I think that this book could really change the tone of not only online, but how we relate to each other. And I think that kind of openness is just fascinating. By the way, um, I did realize that I got kind of put on the exegesis spot and Adam was 100% right or his friend was 100% right on the definition of the word repent. If you go back to the Greek, it's metanoia, which means a changing of your mind or in other words, to think again. So there you go. Just want to clarify that, save a few comments and some emails. Uh, I just kind of froze on that one when, when Adam asked me and uh, and he was absolutely right and his friend was right. It does also mean to turn. It has multiple meanings, but uh, I emailed Adam on that the next day and let him know. So, hey, we got a what I'm thinking about segment and I want to go a little bit deeper on how evangelism is changing and how to think again and do apologetics. I would love to hear what you think in the show notes. You can go and check that out at uh, com slash episode 405 where you will get quotes and insights and every link we talked about, uh, links to all the things we talked about in the show, as well as transcripts. And we do that for free, thanks to our partners. And I do want to thank Glue Connect and also ProMedia Fire. So you can go to glueconnect.church forward slash carry to grow your digital outreach campaign and get free access to my four-part course, Click to Connect. And by ProMedia Fire, you can get help with your social media management and digital growth and get 10% off for life at promediafire.com forward slash carry. Well, by popular demand, next episode, Steve Cuss is back. And we had a great conversation uh, about a year ago on this podcast about managing leadership anxiety. And then actually, this is another dinner conversation type conversation with Steve and I. And we talk all about like, how do you manage stress a year into the crazy world we now live in? Uh, Here's an excerpt. I probably shouldn't have done it, but I remember early on, you know, one of the guests at our church, she laid out every pastor who had ever let her down before she came to our church. And I was a bit less, I had less of a filter and wisdom back then. I was more obnoxious. And I just said, why don't you behead me now and mount my head on your wall? Let's get it over with. Because, right, my job as an anxiety coach is to notice recurring predictable patterns. Of course, I'm going to be past number seven. But I didn't say it in a way that was helpful because it, I, I, I meant to say it playfully. And to what I was trying to say is, 
can we get the offense out of the way and let's see what's on the other side of this? Like where that's where the good stuff is, is on the other side of the offense. Also coming up, amazing conversations with Annie F. Downs, John Maxwell, John Acuff, Rick Warren, Amy Edmondson, Simon Sinek, and uh, well, a whole lot more. I'm so excited for this year on the show, and we are seeing more of you tune in than ever before. If you haven't subscribed yet, you can do that for free wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, yeah, just let us know how it's going. You can always shoot me an email over at Carrie at CarrieNewhoff.com. And I want to talk to you, picking up on what Adam and I talked about about how evangelism is shifting. And I really think if we change our tone and approach in the church, we will do a much better job of reaching people. And I promise you what Adam and I talked about really, really, I find to be a very refreshing conversation, both with people who don't go to church and people who do have a Christian conviction. So uh, in a post-Christian, post-modern world, here are five shifts I think every leader needs to make when it comes to evangelism. So Uh, And this is no surprise if you follow Adam's work. But the first point is simply this. Embracing the question is as important as giving an answer. So historically, apologetics is, okay, uh, what's your question? Here's my answer, right? Boom, 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 boom. And so, (laughs) you know, somebody says, so when I die, will I be reincarnated? Uh, A typical answer might be Christians don't believe in reincarnation. So no, not at all. You're going to be resurrected in Christ. Or what you could do is you could say, That's actually a great question. Thanks for asking it. Actually, the Christian experience focuses on resurrection. Would you like to talk about that? You see, it's it's the same destination, but it's a totally different approach. And there's an openness there that I think is very attractive to people you want to have a conversation with. Uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but just on a human level, I do not enjoy having conversations with people who are just trying to hammer me with their views. I, I, I don't enjoy that. And, uh, you know, as Adam said, a lot of people don't. Um, his, his section of his book, Think Again, about how to make a persuasive argument, killer, 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 killer. Okay, uh, point number two, steering the conversation is better than pushing for a conclusion. So uh, one of the things you can do is just steer a conversation in a helpful direction. And you do that by not freaking out at people's questions, no matter how strange they might be, trying to listen without judgment, uh, affirming a person's intention, going, okay, that's really kind of interesting. So steering a conversation back toward truth is far more effective than slamming on the brakes. So that's point two. So number one, Embracing the question is as important as giving an answer. Number two, steering the conversation is better than pushing for a conclusion. Number three, being open is more effective than being certain. I do think that there is a niche market for like the certainty that we talked about. It's like, here's the way. And, you know, people always follow you. But if you look at the broad swath of humanity, most people actually just want to have a conversation. And I think that kind of openness, and I thought it was a really fascinating point in the dialogue with Adam. This is one of my favorite interviews that I've done 400 episodes in, you know, where he said, are you open? And the fact that I was open made him more open to uh, my viewpoint. And, you know, I'm always learning, I'm always growing. And if I'm not open, I'm not even going to grow as a Christian. So I think being open is more effective than being certain. I would also say that certainty and self-righteousness are often frequent companions. Okay. That leads us to point number four, arrogance, smugness, and superiority are dead. There's a ton of that in the church. There's a ton of that online. I don't think it's really good. And if you want to repel anyone under 40, lead with arrogance, lead with smugness, and lead with superiority. Arrogance, by the way, is also a sin. So here's that word, repent. Get over your smugness and superiority. Humbly love God, your community, and people who don't know him, because God does. You know, Arrogance is only attractive to the arrogant. 
And then finally, the the fifth thing I would say about the way that uh, evangelism is changing in a postmodern culture is the timeline is longer. So I, I've got I'm a pretty driven person. I would love to conclude everything in about 35 seconds. Uh, that does evangelism doesn't work that way. Do you ever notice that people who come to faith when they're pressured, often leave it after a few years. It was just, you know, some weekend or there was a really big mood in the room and they were pressured into it. And then they're just gone a few years later. Um, Jesus said he would draw all people to himself and he will, but he didn't promise to do it in three minutes or even during a 90 minute service or an eight week class. So I find having a long timeline Uh, is really helpful. It took the disciples three years to figure out who Jesus was, so that should give us some encouragement. And having ministered in the same area for 25 years, I can say that extended timeline is amazing. Sometimes people walk out the door and then they come back, and, and sometimes they come back multiple times and you see them grow. So give people time and space to come to faith. Apparently, God does too. He's still patient with you, right? So, Those are some thoughts on how evangelism is shifting in a post-Christian world. I hope the church gets good at this fast. I think a lot is riding on it. And Adam, thank you for being an ally in this cause and trying to get us all to open up our minds and think again. Well, uh, we are back with a fresh episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.